Let's pray. So, Father, as we meditate for the next few minutes on the work of your son, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. And we pray that you would show us in these next minutes together how all of this connects to our lives. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. If you want to use one of the Bibles um, provided in the pews, it would be page 942, Romans chapter 5. And so typically what we do here, if you're new, is that we, we walk through books of the Bible. We're doing that now with the book of Romans. And so we're just going to stay with Romans this morning. This is a perfect text for Easter Sunday morning. It's a text that really is about the ultimate demonstration of God's love. Romans chapter 5, and we're going to look this morning at verses 6 through 11. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we look at it together. Romans chapter 5 and beginning with verse 6 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You can be seated. <clears throat> In a world where the term hero is probably thrown around too much, French police officer Arnaud Beltram certainly qualifies as one. Saturday, a week ago, this man responded to a terrorist crisis in a city in southern France. The terrorist had already hijacked a car, murdered the driver. He had gone into a grocery store where he had already murdered two more people and he was holding a woman as a hostage and using her as a human shield. And it was then that Officer Beltram stepped forward and offered himself in exchange for the hostage. And he himself ended up being killed. It was an act of selfless sacrifice and substitution. By the way, Arnaud Beltram, this officer, had committed his life to Christ in 2008. The police chaplain said of him, the fact is that he did not hide his faith and that he radiated it. He bore witness to it. His act of self-offering is consistent with what he believed. Indeed it was, because at the heart of Christianity is a sacrifice, a substitution, the ultimate 
demonstration of God's love. And last week, as we, we looked at verses 1 through 5 of Romans 5, we, we saw there that in verse 5, uh, Paul concludes by saying that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we see there that part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that he, he pours God's love into our hearts. And now in verses 6 and following, we're going to see that not only has God's love been poured out through the Holy Spirit, God's love has been proven through the work of Christ. So how has God demonstrated? How has God proven his love for us. First of all, he has done that in his death for helpless sinners. Let's look at verse 6. Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So the Greek word that's translated here as weak means powerless, it means utterly helpless. You may have heard the, the expression that that God helps those who help themselves, that's not in the Bible, okay? That originally came from an English political theorist named Algernon Sidney. Benjamin Franklin later adapted it for Poor Richard's Almanac, but it is, it's not in the Bible. Because what the Bible is telling us here is that we could not help ourselves, that we needed help from outside, that we needed rescue. Perhaps the most amazing rescue operation of, of modern times occurred on May 23rd, 1991. It was done by the Israeli military. For centuries, Jewish people had lived in remote areas of the mountains of Ethiopia. And by late 1990 and early 1991, it was becoming apparent that their very existence was under threat because of civil unrest. And the Israeli government made the momentous decision to attempt to rescue these people, thousands of people who lived thousands of miles away from Israel. And so Israeli undercover operatives went to work and for months uh, they sort of covertly uh, began uh, transitioning, moving this population of people to the capital of Ethiopia where the, the airport is located and they kind of positioned them close to the airport and on May 23rd, 1991, the signal went out and these thousands of Ethiopian Jews were moved to the airport. 33 unmarked Israeli jumbo jets swooped down from the sky and within hours, 14,334 Ethiopian Jews had been flown to Israel. Seven more Babies were born on the planes on the way to Israel. And they were welcomed. They were welcomed as Israeli citizens. And in fact, if you visit Israel today, you will see many people of Ethiopian origin. Many of them serve in the IDF, in the Israeli military, the same military that rescued their parents when they were helpless. Christianity is not about God helping those who help, the, who help themselves. Christianity is about a rescue operation. It's about God helping us when we could do nothing to save ourselves. 
And Paul comments on this in verses seven and eight. Look at it. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Paul recognizes that certainly, I mean, we see examples of, of, of one person uh, giving themselves for others. I mentioned one just a, a, a moment ago in, in the example of, of the French policemen. And certainly there are many examples of, of policemen who give their lives for the innocent. It's a concept that's deeply rooted in our nation's military. I, I love reading Medal of Honor commendations. I can't get through them with, without... Uh, tears when I read about uh, the sacrifice of people in our military that have made for others. And I know that those commendations for Medal of Honor winners, uh, that, that, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg, that there are selfless sacrifices for others that take place regularly on the battlefield for comrades and for innocent civilians. Giving a, a life for others is something certainly that's built into loving families. What loving parent would not give their life for their child. But this is different. Paul says here that, that Jesus died for us when we hated him. This was not a situation where we were, where we were pleading for, for, for God to intervene and come to, to rescue us. Jesus, my sins need to be atoned for. No, no, this was, this was Jesus dying for those who were driving the nails into his hands and feet, ultimately us, because it was our sins that put him there. And so we see the love of God demonstrated, first of all, in Christ's death for helpless sinners, second, in his resurrection and its results. Let's look at verses nine through 11. Paul says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So when we look at verses 9 through 11, there are four incredibly important truths that emerge, and we're going to look at them just through, um, through four words that emerge from, from these verses. And the first word is justification, and we see it in verse 9. The Bible says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. So if you've been with us um, for our study of Romans, we've been talking about this word justification quite a bit. Um, it, it comes from the same kind of word family in Greek as the word righteous. And so to be justified means to be made right to be made right with God. And we need that because we saw the first part of Romans all the way from chapter 1 and verse 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20. What were we seeing? We were seeing that we were in, we were in the wrong with God. 
that apart from Jesus, that we are all in the wrong with God. We are crossways with God and we desperately need to be made right with him. And then beginning in chapter three and verse 21, we saw what God has done to make sinners like us right with himself. And we saw in chapter three in verses 23 and 24, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It says that this comes to us as a gift. It's not something that we can earn, but it's like any gift. In order for a gift to become yours, you have to receive it. How do we receive this gift that God has provided for us, that Jesus has worked to accomplish, we receive it by faith, simply by turning to Jesus and trusting him. Not by doing, but by trusting in what Jesus has already done for us. Now, how does the resurrection connect with all of this? So we saw in chapter 4 and verse 25 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. How do we know that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was an acceptable sacrifice to God for our sins? How do we know that Jesus was the son of God and not just another martyr who died for a good cause? We know it because he rose from the dead. And the resurrection validates and vindicates everything that he said and everything that he did. And we know that he did die for our sins. And we know that he really was the son of God because of the resurrection. The second word that emerges um, in these verses is the word salvation. Salvation. So let's look again at verse 9. Paul says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. Saved from what? Saved by him from the wrath of God. Now I realize that we're 21st century Americans and we don't like to talk about things like the wrath of God. But the problem is that the Bible talks a lot about it. <laughs> and Jesus talked a lot about it. I was on a plane one time and I got into a spiritual conversation with the woman who was sitting uh, next to me. And she said to me, well, um, I believe in God, but I believe in the God of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the one who doesn't talk about wrath. At which point I knew that she had never read the Sermon in the Mount, on the Mount in her life. <laughs> Because when you read Matthew 5 through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks a lot about wrath. And he talks a lot about judgment. And he talks a lot about hell. And it would be completely irresponsible of me and ultimately unloving of me to stand here and water down what, what Jesus said. No, he talked a lot about wrath. And, and, and indeed, uh, Paul is, is saying here that the very thing that we can be saved from in verse 9 is that we are saved by him from the wrath of God. Because you see, God is holy. God is righteous. 
God cannot wink at sin. He cannot, he cannot, he cannot sweep it beneath the rug. He would not be worthy of our worship if he were that kind of God. God is righteous and, and holy, and he, and he has to deal with evil and with sin, and it must be punished, but the glorious good news of the gospel is that God loved us so much that he became one of us and took his own righteous wrath against sin on himself on the cross. And so those who know Jesus as Savior will never experience the wrath of God because we have a Savior who took that wrath in our place. But here's the deal. You know, if, if we don't turn to the one who dealt with our sins on the cross, then the Bible says we'll deal with our own sins forever in hell. How tragic would that be when we have a savior that we can receive by faith? Salvation is the second word. The third word that we see here in these verses is reconciliation. We see it in verse 10. Paul says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the son much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Paul says here at the beginning of verse 10 that before Christ came into our lives that we were, we were enemies of God. That's a very jarring kind of statement to hear because none of us want to think of ourselves as enemies of God. But the truth is that before we turn to Christ and trust in him, that we are in active rebellion against God. And you know, we can try to convince ourselves that you know, things are okay, and we can kind of say, hey, I'm, I'm good with God. But the real question is, is he good with you? <laughs> you know, I mean, are you in the right with him? Well, you can be. And we saw last week how that can be. We saw it in, in verse one of chapter five, where Paul says, since therefore, therefore, since we have been justified, made right with God by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith in the Savior, we are put in a state of, we are at peace with God. We're not only at peace with him, but he has adopted us when we trust in Jesus, God adopts us as his own beloved sons and daughters. He, he loves us and he accepts us based not on our performance, but based on the perfect performance of Jesus for us on the cross. And that's offered to us as a gift. And note here this reference to the resurrection of Christ that we see. In verse 10, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Australian New Testament scholar Michael Bird says this about that. If God has reconciled us by the death of his son, then certainly he will save us by the life of his risen son. And listen, when the Bible talks about being saved, it means much more than going to heaven when we die. 
Now that's wonderful. And that is part of salvation, right? If you're saved, you do go to heaven when you die. Praise God. But salvation is so much more than that. When the Bible talks about being saved, it's not just talking about going to heaven when we die, right? When, when Paul says here that he will save us by the life of his risen son, that life of Jesus continues. He was raised from the dead. He was exalted. He ascended. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father. And one day he is coming again. And when that happens, his resurrection is the guarantee of our own resurrection. Because those who know Jesus are going to be raised. You know, those who have died in Christ, they are now, according to 2 Corinthians 5, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But you know what? There's coming a day when they're not going to be absent from the body anymore. They're going to get new bodies. All of us who believe in Jesus will glorified bodies like his resurrected body, real flesh and blood, glorified bodies, and we are going to live in those glorified bodies in a totally renewed creation, a creation without sin, without suffering, and without death. That's the future of every believer, and that's the, the ultimate meaning here of salvation. Many of you watched the funeral of Billy Graham recently, I, I, I did. Um, and it was interesting watching his funeral because I heard him preach so many other funerals of other people. And um, one of the, the funerals that Billy Graham had, had preached um, was um, President Nixon's funeral. And at that, at that funeral, he talked about another funeral. Billy Graham talked about the funeral of one of my favorite figures in history, Winston Churchill. Churchill's funeral was on January the 30th, 1965. It was in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And Churchill had planned every detail of it. And according to Churchill's plan, at the end, right after the benediction, there was a bugler way up in the dome of St. Paul's that broke into taps. The, the universal signal that, that the day is over, it's come to an end. But then there came this dramatic flourish. Because again, according to Churchill's instructions, on the other side of the dome, immediately after the last note of taps, another bugler high up in the dome broke into reveille. The universal signal that a new day has dawned and that it's time to arise. It's Churchill's testimony to the fact that for the believer, the last note will not be taps. It will be reveille. We will arise because Jesus rose. The fourth word that we see here in these verses is celebration. Celebration, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We, when we embrace these truths of Easter, there is a surging joy. How can there not be if we really understand this? 
and we really embrace it, how can we not rejoice in this? I mean, and even whatever, whatever suffering and trials that we go through in this life, and, and, and there are many, but whatever, whatever we go through, whatever pain or darkness we go through during the course of this life, we know as believers that it's temporary. We know what our future is, and we know that what is coming is just going to totally overwhelm the sufferings of this life. You know, Paul says it in chapter 8 and verse 18 of Romans. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What a promise. What a promise that is. You know, this world offers so many empty promises, so many, so many uh, distractions, diversions, just the, the stuff, mainly smoke and mirrors, doesn't add up to anything. All, all the things that, that you know, we, we try to occupy ourselves with, people try to occupy themselves with to, to keep from thinking about the ultimate things like we've thought about for the past few minutes. Things to kind of distract them and, and, and keep them from thinking about the holes in their own souls. All the things that people chase after in this world, money, sex, power, I mean, all of these things are just promises full of emptiness. But in the gospel, we find an emptiness full of promise, an empty cross, empty grave clothes. Praise God, an empty tomb. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that we have a risen Savior. We thank you that death has been defeated. We thank you that there is a remedy for our sin and brokenness because Jesus was broken for us in our place on the cross. And Father, I pray for anyone here today who's never turned to Jesus and trusted him as Savior and Lord that you would work in their lives right now and that they would turn to Jesus and trust in him and receive him as our Savior, Lord, and King. And we pray it in his name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song of, of invitation. If you're here today and you've got spiritual questions, we don't want you to go away from here with them unanswered. We would love to to come alongside you and our pastors are going to be here. We'll be here during our time of invitation. We'll be here after our service today. We would love to come alongside and, and talk with you. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family, uh, we want to invite you to come. We want to we want to welcome you and celebrate with, with you. If you're here and you've got a need in your life uh, for prayer, uh, we're here for you. Let's stand together as we sing.